Good morning. I'm excited. I'm not sure what to say. I think they did a fantastic job. Thank you for whoever was decorating. Um, fresh snow outside. Does anyone else just want to go outside and just shovel all day? That's my plan for the rest of the day. Um, as we jump into this, let me read just three verses to you about God's word. In Hebrews, the writer writes, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And then Paul writes to Timothy in his second letter, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And then Jesus quoted to to Satan, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Father, as we come before you today together, uh, Lord, we know our failures, we know our shortcomings, God. Um, Lord, we, we know how our sin blinds us, and we just pray, God, work among us this morning. Some of us come today weary and discouraged. Um, some are just tired, Lord. I pray, God, uh, that you would use your, your word this morning, that we would depend upon it as our, our bread, God, that it would discern our intentions of our heart, God, and that you would sanctify us and make us more like you today. Lord, may you empower us and lift us up to worship you more, to see your, your goodness and your love. And God, we ask this in the, son of your, the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. As you turn in there, let me give you, uh, just to remind you what's going on in this passage right now. And so remember, Paul is writing to uh, these churches in the Mediterranean region called Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey today. Paul is the one that founded the churches on his first missionary journey, and they comprise almost entirely of Gentile Christians. So they're non-Jews, non-Jewish people who have put their faith in Christ. Now, after Paul left, to carry on his mission in the Mediterranean region area, false teachers came in afterwards, which their name is the Judaizers, because they falsely taught that in order to become a Christian and to stay a Christian, you needed to follow the Mosaic law, such as being circumcised, as that will come up as a a big item, and then follow all the regulations, the, the ceremonial laws, the food laws. You have to keep this in order to be a Christian, to stay a Christian. That's what the false teachers were teaching. And then from that, the Galatians were struggling. They're Gentile believers, and now they're being told, hey, you have to follow this. You have to do this. You have to hold to these laws in order to become a Christian and to stay Christian. And so Paul writes this letter to the the churches, defending the gospel he taught, defending his authority as apostle in order to defend the gospel, And as we saw the past couple of weeks, that Paul defends the heart of his gospel, which is justification by faith, meaning being declared righteous because of our faith, which we receive Christ's righteousness. We are made right with God, declared right with God by faith alone. And so Paul defends this. 
And we saw last week Paul defending this even throughout the Christian life, that we're to rely on the Spirit through faith in our Christian life. And so Paul continues to battle these lies, battle these false teachings in the Judaizers. Um, And today, Paul shows how Abraham, the father of the Jews, he, in fact, was declared righteous. He was justified by faith, not the law and not circumcision. Um, He'll show the curse of the law, of trying to live by the law to be made right with God. And then he ends by explaining how the promise by faith is superior to the to the law. And now those three points that I just mentioned there, Abraham being saved by faith, the curse of the law, and the superiority of the promise by faith over the law, that might seem distant from us. Like, okay, what does that have to do anything with me? Yeah, Abraham, cool. Yeah, curse of the law. That doesn't sound very fun. And then the superiority of faith over the law. Big deal. Um, but within this passage, we'll see that for us, we see the blessing of faith We see the curse of living by the law. And then we do see how faith is and should continue to be kept superior to the law. And so we'll see that. It applies directly to us. So come with me. Point one. The blessing of living by faith. Verses six through nine. We see Paul brings up Abraham. And he does this intentionally. So no doubt. No doubt. The false teachers would have used Abraham in an attempt to defend or to to support their false teaching. He was the patriarch. He's the father of the Hebrew people. Um, And he was the first one to be circumcised. So no doubt that they were using him. Abraham meant everything to the Jews. He was the man. In fact, if you, I believe it's in John chapter 8. I could be wrong by that. But the Jews, and while Jesus was on earth in his earthly ministry, the Jews were basically saying that we're right with God because we're physically descendants of Abraham. So they were, they were holding on that. Hey, just because we're kids of Abraham, that's why we're right with God instead of being through faith. And so they held on to this. And we see that the false teachers held on this as well. But Paul, in this section, literally proves from Scripture that Abraham was not justified by the law. He was not justified by circumcision, but it was through faith. So dive with me. Verse 6. Follow with this. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. How was it counted to him as righteousness? How was he justified? How was he declared right with God? Because he believed God. This quote, where in your Bible there might be some quotes around it, that's because Paul is quoting from Genesis 15.6. In the timeline, at what point this happens in Abraham's life, it's clear that it's by faith alone. It can't be by the law, because the law came, the Mosaic law, hundreds of years after this point in Abraham's life. Circumcision, at least 13 years after this point, it happens. So those two things the false teachers are saying, you need these in order to become Christians and to stay Christian, that happened a decade and hundreds of years after this point. The point that God counts to Abraham righteousness through his faith. Completely opposed to what the false teachers were saying. In this verse, 
Um, in particular, the Old Testament makes a very significant point, and it's this, that salvation has always been by faith alone and not works. Salvation has always been by faith alone and not works. Those before Jesus in the Old Testament were saved the same way we are today, and that's through faith in Christ. And that may seem hard to, to, to understand or hard to, to grasp because they didn't know about Jesus of Nazareth, who was born to Mary and Joseph. They never knew about that in the first century. They were hundreds of years before Jesus. But they were saved by faith as they trusted the promises of God of the one to come, namely Jesus. So we've got the cross, right? I'm going to try to do this backwards. Uh, a timeline. You've got 3000 uh, BC, then you've got the cross, and then you've got us down that way, right? Am I doing it the right way, the timeline? Left to right. Here we go. And so we, as Christians, in order to be saved from our sin, we look back to the cross. We trust the promises of God that through Christ, through faith, we can be saved from our sin. So we look back to the cross. Those before Jesus in the Old Testament, like Abraham, they looked ahead. They looked forward to the cross. The promises of him to come. The promises of who will be the final sacrifice. They looked ahead and they trusted and that's how they were saved. And so it's always been by faith. And this verse about Abraham just is so clear. That Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. So it's always been by faith. And this absolutely destroys what the, the false teachers were saying. That, oh, you have to keep the law. You have to be circumcised. No. It's always been by faith. Look at Abraham. He wasn't even circumcised at this point. The law wasn't even close to becoming to, to Moses. It was by faith. It was through faith. So he makes that point. Verse 7, Paul continues on. He says, Know then, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The logical conclusion then is that if the father of the Jews, Abraham, was saved by faith, then it is those who have that same faith who are just children, or children as in those who receive the promises that were given to Abraham. And this is revolutionary to the Jews, to especially the false teachers, that it wasn't just because they were physical descendants of Abraham and followed the law, that did not mean that you were children of the promise. But it's through faith that this promise of being right with God, justification, is by faith alone. And then Paul ends uh, here in verse 8 with the fact that God has always intended for non-Jews the Gentiles, to be blessed through faith. Look at verse 8 with me. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So Paul personifies scripture. He says that God has always intended to make a way for the Gentiles to be right with him through faith. Um, and he, he, Paul writes that, God preached the gospel to him, the good news to Abraham, and he quotes Genesis 12:3. That's when the in, in you shall the nations be all the nations should be blessed. Um, Thomas Schreiner, he's a, he's a scholar, 
in a short sentences, he does an amazing job of clearly explaining this. So let me quote him here. He writes, God promised Abraham that all peoples, not just Jews, but also Gentiles, which is the vast majority of us here, would be blessed through him. And here Paul argues that this universal blessing is secured through the gospel and that Gentiles receive this blessing when they are declared to stand in the right before God through faith in Jesus Christ. So it was always the purpose of God to make a way of salvation to all peoples through faith, and not just the Jews. The Jews, definitely, but also to all peoples. And then Paul ends this section in verse 9 and kind of summarizes. He says, So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So those who have this faith are blessed. The blessings of, of being made right with God, the, the blessings of the promises are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And can you just that kind of jab at the false teachers? It has nothing to do with the law or circumcision, but he's a man of faith. I realize I went through that kind of quickly, <laughs> kind of made from the excitement. But Paul kind of lays out here the blessing of faith, that we receive the promises through faith, not through the law, but through faith. And so, so the question, what does that look like in our daily lives? Okay, blessing of faith, great. Abraham was saved through faith. That sounds great. What does that mean for our life today, tomorrow, this week? Um, and when I say living by faith, like what is the blessing of living by faith? Living by the truth that right now we are right with God. Right now we know that God is for us. He's not against us. He loves us. And so what are some of these blessings? Let me give you five. Number one, we do not need to desperately work for God's approval and love. We do not. Tomorrow morning when we wake up, we don't have any kind of need of desperately striving for God's approval and love because he's already given it to us in Christ. We already have it. We are already righteous in God's eyes through Christ. And so we can rest. And we can serve God and others from this position of security. And so that brings to the second point of this blessing of faith is that you are secure. That this, this, this righteousness before God cannot be undone. It wasn't because of us it was given to us. And it can't be because of us that we're, it's gone. It's a work of God, and so we are secure. A third kind of section of this blessing, uh, kind of from last week. If you remember last week, we talked about relying on the Spirit. And in our daily walk as a Christian, we depend on His strength and not ours. Let me read a passage from Matthew 11. This is Jesus talking. He says this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Does that not describe a lot of us, especially when it comes to Monday, <laughs> tomorrow, with work and everything? 
Come to me all who labor and heavy laden. But like also in our Christian lives, how it can just feel like, all right, I have to do this, this, this. We can rest. Jesus says his yoke is light and we can learn from him. We depend on his strength. A fourth blessing of faith is the triumph of God's grace over your failures. The triumph of God's grace over your failures. Paul writes in Romans 8.1, one of my favorite verses, Therefore there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Therefore there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We never need to sit in a place of defeat, despair, and condemnation because you are forgiven, you are a child of God, and God wants you to have victory each day and he wants to empower you each day. And my fifth point, just to extol the blessings of, of faith, is that God is forever for you and will never be against you. God is forever for you and will never be against you. All these circumstances in our life that come up, the big things, the small... Is that Sawyer? Oh, I'm not calling anyone out. I thought it was Sawyer. Coming back. <laughs> All these things that come up in our life, the big circumstances and then the small frustrations in life... We can know for certain that it's all for our good. It's all for God's glory. And it's nothing against us in a negative way because God is for us. As, as Paul writes in Romans, Romans 8, he says, If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And so that's the blessing of faith, security. We are loved. And nothing can change that status because we never even gained that status. It was given to us. The security, the blessing of faith. Number two. Now let's get to the good stuff. The curse of the law. Sounds like fun, right? So Paul starts. So in the next verses, 10 through 14, Paul talks about the curse of the law. He explains how those who rely on works of the law are cursed. So verse 10, he says, For all who rely on on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So remember, these are the Galatians. They're being taught by the false teachers, Hey, you have to do this. You have to follow the Mosaic law. You have to do this, 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 this in order to be right in God's eyes, to be a Christian, and to continue to be righteous in God's eyes. That's what's being thrown on them. They're being burdened by this. Paul says... Hey, if you rely on these works, you're under a curse. And he explains, he, he quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26. That's the quote. He, 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 he quotes a lot in this passage because he's proving from Scripture how the false teaching is in fact false. So he says, you're under a curse. Why? Because anyone who tries to rely on the law to be righteous, you have to do everything perfectly. And you're cursed because no one can. No man can. Jesus did, but no man can. And by no man, also no woman. A woman are great. I'm all for women. <laughs> but he's saying that no one, no one can keep it perfectly. So we're under a curse. We all deserve punishment. We all deserve hell. Because we can't. We, we can't obtain that perfect status. And so Paul says, everyone's under a curse because you can't keep it all. You can't be perfect. 
And then he says in verse 11 that this is actually clear. He says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith. It's evident. No one can do this. If you think you can't, ask your spouse. Ask your kids. Ask your parents. They'll tell you, no, no, you're not not perfect. But no one can. In the verse 10, he quotes from Deuteronomy and he proves he proves that we can't be righteous by the law. And then in the verse 11 here, he quotes from it's Habakkuk 2.4 and he proves that it must be by faith. There's no other way. And then he summarizes in verse 12. He says, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. He says the law is not of faith. If you try to live by the law, you're going to do this, this, and this. If you live by faith, it's about believing that someone else did. They're completely opposed to each other. And so this curse of the law is that no one is able to perfectly follow the law. And because of that, we're cursed. We're pun- we're, we deserve punishment. But verse 13, thankfully, there's hope. There's hope. Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written, curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. And this verse just sprouts hope. He says that Jesus became a curse for us. He becomes our substitute. And I I think, and you might also think, um, I think Genesis 21, Abraham and his son Isaac going up on a hill because God asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son. And it says that he stacks the wood. He builds an altar. He starts stacking the wood. It says that he binds his son Isaac. I don't know if he knocks him out or what he does, but he binds him. Puts him on the altar. And it literally says he's about to kill him. He's getting his knife ready. And he's ready because God told him to do this. And then at that instant, an angel appears and says, Abraham, Abraham, stop. God knows now that you fear him. And it says that Abraham looked up and he saw a ram caught in, in this brush. And so Abraham took the ram, takes the ram, and sacrificed that in the place of Isaac as a substitute for Isaac. And then Abraham calls that place the Lord will provide because the Lord provided a substitute. In the same way, God provides a substitute for us for taking the curse of the law upon them. And that's Jesus. He takes the curse of the law that we're imperfect and that we deserve punishment. He took that upon himself. And it says that he redeems us from the law. And so at that time, the redeemed, it was commonly used as purchasing freedom for a slave. Redeeming, purchasing freedom for the slave. And so Jesus redeems us from slavery to sin, but slavery to death, to eternal punishment. And the cost was his blood, his death. It was not cheap at all. And Paul quotes here another quote at the end of verse 13 that curses everyone who's hanged on a tree is from Deuteronomy chapter 21. And, and listen to this as the pastor kind of gives uh, the background of that. It's interesting, I think. He, he writes this. He says, in ancient Judaism... A criminal who was executed, usually by stoning, was then tied to a post, which is a type of tree, 
where his body would hang until sunset, is a visible representation of rejection by God. It's not that the person was cursed because he was hung on a tree, but because he was hung on a tree is why he was cursed. So in Christ, Jesus did not become a curse because he was crucified, but he was crucified because he was cursed and taking the full sin, our sin, upon himself. He took the, the curse upon himself. Paul continues, verse 14, that Jesus does this for a purpose. Verse 14 starts with, so that, a purpose. Why does Jesus do this? He says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So Jesus took on the curse of the law so that the blessing of faith, the blessing of justification, the blessing of forgiveness of our sin, the blessing of of redemption may come to the Gentiles through faith, and they may receive the promised spirit, which who is the mark of a true Christian. Jesus redeemed us so that we may receive this blessing, Abraham's promised blessing, the promised spirit. And it's all through faith. And I love this picture uh, a pastor gives. Listen to this. It's very simple. I think it was really good. He says this. On man's part, the curse is lifted by faith, which God, on his part and by grace, counts as righteousness on the believer's behalf, and the river of blessing begins to flow. The rushing and crushing water of God's grace engulfs the believer. That through faith, this curse of the law is lifted, and the blessing of faith just rushes and overwhelms the believer. But those rely on works, as Paul says here, are under a curse. So what does that mean for you and me? What does that mean? Let me, I want, uh, let me be clear about this. So Paul is talking here about, about justification, right? Justification by faith. And he says here that those, this is completely opposed to those who try to be made right with God by works. That's his whole point here, that they're under a curse because they can't be saved by the law and they'll be damned for eternity. That's what he's saying. With that in mind, remember that Paul is writing this to the churches in Galatia, who he knows, he was there, that they have already been declared righteous because of their faith in Christ or through their faith in Christ. But now, because of the false teaching, they are trying to turn back again to works in order to gain or try to keep the status before God, which they already have through faith. Does that make sense? So Paul is defending justification by faith, but he's doing this to believers who are already justified, but who are trying to go back to works. So this curse of the law being applied to the Galatians and to us is not that we're cursed for punishment because Christ has already took that upon us. But if we start to go back to the works, if we try to go back to earning God's love and grace in our daily lives, 
we're almost still under a curse, a curse of this, this guilt and this condemnation. And this may look differently for each of us. I know we, we kind of try to create this own standard that, hey, we have to keep this, this, and this, and then God is happy with me today. And I know I am so guilty of this. Uh, like for me, if I, my morning devotional, if I do that, God is happy with me. If I share the gospel with someone, God is delighted in me. And then if I'm super nice to Casey, God is ecstatic. Right? I, I create this list. Uh, for you, it might be different. Like for Casey, it might be, hey, if I am patient with Sawyer and I don't lose my, my patience, God is happy with me. Or if I don't lash out at Alex because he's not very smart and he does stupid things, God is going to give me some good stuff. But we create these standards that, hey, if I do this and this, God is happy with me and life is good. But that's not how it is at all because we already have that status in Christ. But this this curse of like, whoa, if we keep these things, these things, we rely on this, that somehow we'll earn God's grace. It just brings in condemnation and guilt from the enemy because I don't share the gospel every day. And then it's like, God is upset with me. He's angry with me because I haven't done this. I was mean to Casey, which never happens. (laughs) God is mad with me. And it seems, honestly, what I'm saying, it seems like, wow, you're stupid if you believe that, Alex. I fall into that all the time. So we rely on these works. And it's a horrible life. Relying on works is a horrible life. It's a life driven by fear, a life filled with guilt and condemnation and shame. Martin Luther, he, he, he describes trying to, to live by works this way. He says this, trying to be justified by the law is like counting money out of an empty purse, eating and drinking from, from an empty dish and cup, looking for strength and riches where there's nothing but weakness and poverty, laying burden on someone who is already oppressed to the point of collapse and trying to spend 100 gold pieces and not having even a single penny. That's what relying on works is like. And what is so frustrating is that we already have it. We already have this approval of God. We already have God's love. We already have righteousness. It's been given to us. It's been purchased by Christ. Yet, we go back to works as if this is how I have that righteousness. I have to keep this, this, and this. But we already have it. It's already ours in Christ. And so this curse of the law, it just brings guilt and condemnation and shame and despair. Let me give an example. If I haven't given one enough between Casey and I. Um, it's like this. It's when you try to be the husband who sacrificially loves and leads his family. It's when you try to be the supportive wife and loving mother. It's when you try to be the on-fire Christian, and yet you fail, whether that's by being impatient with the kids, bursting out in anger towards your, your spouse, or cowering in fear when an opportunity to share the gospel comes up. And then at that point, we think that we've lost God's love and approval, that he's mad with us, that he's upset with us, and that we have to somehow regain God's favor, regain a positive view 
on us in God's eyes. That we have to do this, we have to do, we have to do all these penitence, if that's the right word, in order to, to gain back this approval. It could be very debilitating. Because then we start to hear, you're a horrible father. You call yourself a, a, a mother and you're doing this? You call yourself a Christian and you just ran away from the opportunity? This is what the curse of the law is like for a believer. And again, it's so horrible because that's not even the truth. Because we've already received this the security of God's love of righteousness in Christ. So turn with me to the last section, verses 15 through 18. And here, um, Paul makes clear the superiority of the promise through faith over the law. And I'm sorry if I say some technical things, but it's for our good. <laughs> that was moving on. 15. He says, so to give a human example. So thank you, Paul. He's trying to explain this. Thank you. Brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. So he gives an example of a man-made covenant. That, hey, once it's made, once it starts, it's ratified, it cannot be changed, it cannot be added to. A good example of the opposite of this is like our Constitution, the American Constitution. It can be amended. That's how we can go from the 18th Amendment of abolishing alcohol to the 21st Amendment, re, re like abolishing the 18th Amendment by saying alcohol, you can now drink and be merry. It can be amended, it can be changed. And Paul is saying with these the covenants, these agreements, at that time, they cannot be changed. They cannot be invalidated. They cannot be uh, added to. They can't be. And so Paul begins to explain this covenant with Abraham. That's where the promise of faith the promise of salvation, justification comes through. He begins to explain that by first establishing that these, this covenant, these promises to Abraham is through faith in Christ. Look at me in verse 16. He says this, and again, he quotes a ton of Old Testament scripture because he supports it. Verse 16, he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham in this covenant that God makes with Abraham. He says, And to his offspring... It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. And it can seem very wordy, but what Paul is saying here, by the inspiration of God, that in Genesis 22:18, when God promises Abraham that through your offspring, the nations of the earth will be blessed. Paul is saying that offspring that God is talking about is Jesus Christ. It's singular. It refers to Jesus. That all the blessings of the promises to Abraham, it culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. So if you want to be a partaker of the promises of Abraham, of justification, of forgiveness of sin, of redemption, he says you must be a partaker with Christ through faith. As Paul is establishing that the promises of Abraham come through faith. He already nailed that kind of in that first section, 6 through 9. But he, he's establishing again, this covenant with Abraham comes through faith because it all culminates in Christ. Verse 17, now he talks about the law. He says, verse 17, this is what I mean. Thank you, Paul. Like It's actually really nice that he, he knows he needs to explain himself. As I mentioned earlier, in, I know this is off, off, but in 
one of Peter's letters, I forget his first Peter, second Peter, he writes about Paul writing some stuff that's hard to understand. Like even Peter, an apostle, was like, yeah, this is kind of hard to understand. But Paul says this. This is what I mean. The law, verse 17, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So 430 years um, before the law, God re- gave his promises of, that he gave to Abraham to Jacob. And that's where that 430 years has come from. It's not even from Abraham, which is like another 200 years, I believe. But it just goes from, from the last time like Abraham's promises were, were given to another person, Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. He said, 430 years, and then the Mosaic covenant came with the law. He's saying that this Mosaic covenant with the law does not change or add anything to the Abrahamic covenant, which was all through faith, as he said in Genesis 15, 6. The righteousness came by faith. The law does not change that, which came 430 years afterwards. So kind of how he says in verse 15, that the covenant is not annulled or invalidated or changed by another one coming, but the Abrahamic covenant, which is through faith, Still stands. Does that make sense? Let me put this in. If you're like, okay, then what the heck, what, what, what's the purpose of the law? Great question. Verse 19, Paul gets that. He's right on it. Look, I look forward to next week. This will be a ton of fun. But coming back, coming back. Paul ends the verse 18. Because his point is just saying that it's through faith. It's justification by faith. The Abrahamic covenant, by which is by faith, is not changed by the Mosaic Covenant, the law. Verse 18, he ends, For if the inheritance comes by the law, if the inheritance of the promises of Abraham came by the law, it is no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So he's saying, if the, if the Mosaic Covenant with the law did add to the Abrahamic Covenant, then it would change. It would come by the law. But that's not the case, he says. That is not the case because it's by promise. So the Mosaic Covenant with the law does not invalidate the Abrahamic Covenant, which is only dependent on one person, that's God, who is forever faithful. So what does that mean for you and me? That sounds really good, Alex. What does that mean for me today when I go home and shovel to my fingers bleed? In short, it means this. We are prone to each day to make the law in our works superior to faith. The whole world is built on you have to do this in order to earn this. Our flesh, our sinful nature, wants us to be independent. We hate being dependent on someone. We hate being dependent. We want to be dependent on our works so that we have control, that we have power. And then Satan, I would argue, loves to get us to live by works and not faith because when he gets us to live by works, we fail. And that's when he heaps guilt and condemnation and that's when we're horrible witnesses to, to Christ, the gospel, and God's glory. And so in short, this means that it is a battle every day as these forces try to get us away from living the blessing of faith and trying to get us to, to live by the law, which is a cursed life. And we are to, as Paul kind of argues here, 
reinstate that, no, I'm justified by faith, not these works. I do these things because I'm justified by faith, but I am not made right with God. God does not approve me because I do these things, but because of Christ. So what does this actually look like? Let me give you five things really quick. You ready? Ready, Heidi? I, I, I'm sorry. I saw you. Let's go. She's got her pen ready. Here we go. Number one. I try to be practical. And honestly, this is for me, if not for me, more than you probably. Here we go. Number one is preaching the truth, the gospel to yourself every single day. And I would argue every single moment in my case. Preaching the truth, the gospel to yourself every single moment. Why? Kind of two reasons, two ends. Number one is because we are slow. Let me, let me say that again. We are either on one end slowly forgetting how sinful we are. We begin to think we are superior to others. We, we start to compare ourselves. And we like to compare ourselves with the, the, the ugly duckling because we feel better about ourselves. I'm not saying that we forget that we're sinners. It just becomes like intellectual furniture that oh, yeah, we just forget about. It doesn't really come to our minds. And it, like just pride just creeps in. So we should preach ourselves to ourselves the gospel because A, because we pride just suddenly comes to our life. Or the other way, our sinfulness and our failures are so evident that they bring us to despair and discouragement and it just paralyzes us. And we're told to preach the gospel to ourselves that we are forgiven. We are forgiven in Christ. But the answer is not to overlook our sin, not no big deal, but to see our sin, acknowledge it, and preach to ourselves when Satan accuses us that yes, yep, you're right, Satan, that was horrible, that was wrong, that was evil, but Jesus already, already forgave me for that. In fact, in Romans 8, Paul says that Jesus is up in heaven right now interceding for us. So that's number one. In this battle of living by the blessing of faith, living by the, the curse of the law, we're to preach the truth to ourselves, the gospel to ourselves. And honestly, the rest of these pretty much work off of that one. So number two is uh, hold to the truth over our feelings and emotions because they love to, to, to overwhelm us. Uh, we can easily become depressed and discouraged and our, and our emotions just control us. I would argue, um, I don't know, I, I think the enemy of our souls loves to influence our feelings and just dig us down, just get overwhelmed by it. Martin Luther, he writes this, he writes this. Even though I feel myself completely crushed and swallowed by sin and see God as a hostile and wrathful judge, yet, in fact, this is not true. It is only my feeling that thinks so. The word of God, which I ought to follow in these anxieties rather than my own consciousness, teaches me much differently, namely that God is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushing spirit, Psalm 34, and that he does not despise a broken and contrite heart, Psalm 51. So he says, my feelings are telling me that God is angry at me, that he's a wrathful judge ready to pour out on me, that he is hostile to me, but yet this ain't so, because in Christ he is not that, but my feelings are telling me that he is but that is not so, and I should listen to the truth rather than my feelings. And that is so simplistic and so hard. If you're anything like me, I'm emotional, as Casey. Number three, 
So five ways that we're to, to battle every day about living by the blessing of faith and not the curse of the law. Number three is to hold to truth, very similar to, to number two, over deeply felt and repeated shame messages. Over deeply felt and repeated shame messages. And I, and I make this a follow-up to point to um, just to acknowledge that each of us carry messages of shame that have been so repeated in our lives and has felt so deep in our souls that they're like a cold knife that Satan likes to bring up every now and then and just slowly push into our hearts. Whether that be you're not enough, you're too much, you don't have what it takes, and just message after message that Satan likes to bring up. You don't have what it takes. Martin Luther, he told a story. I know I'm bringing Martin Luther up, but he, he's got, he argued this. He's like really good. Anyway, he tells the true story of a physician who killed himself because he became convinced that Jesus was accusing him before the Father. I remember uh, listening to a message um, from a guy. I was watching it on YouTube. Um, and he, he talks about spiritual warfare and at one point, he just kind of stopped. And like with tears in his eyes, he looked at people in the room and he just said, don't kill yourself. Don't kill yourself. And the whole point, it, it just kind of, this is real. Spiritual warfare is real. And it brings people to the end. You may not be feeling, the person next to you may be feeling so low that Satan's dragging them down. And it comes to that point. And so the battle is real every day. And so hold to truth. And a lot of times it can feel like you're holding on in a hurricane, but hold to truth. Uh, number four is um, take every thought captive. And this comes from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where he talks about like false teachings, where he's talking about how he takes every thought captive that goes against Christ, against truth. He takes it captive. And in the same way, we can do that in our minds. What are we allowing to reign free in our minds? These lies from Satan or the truth? And so when these lies pop up, that, hey, that was horrible. You are a bad person. God hates you. And that's not true in Christ. We need to take those thoughts captive and bring them to the truth. That's not true. God loves me. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ. We take every thought captive, and that brings to, to, to number five, is have the truth ready. Being in God's word so we can recognize the lies. And number two, memorizing scripture, like Romans 8, 1, which I think is excellent. There is therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And then Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So in our passage, Paul continues to support his gospel that we are made right with God. We are forgiven of our sin through faith. He points to Abraham, the blessing coming through faith. He points how if you try to depend on the law, you're under a curse. Because we can't be perfect and it only leads 
to eternal punishment. And then he talks about how even how the covenants happen, God's covenants, it's been by faith and that does not change by the law. And then for us, we need to wake up each morning ready to fight because Satan's ready to fight. To fight for the truth that we are made right by God and that we continue to be right by God through faith in what Christ has already done. So as I close with prayer, I want to invite the deacons forward as we transition to taking the Lord's Supper together. So pray with me. Father, Lord, help us. We know the truth. Um, and it's hard. Help us to believe it, Lord, because it's hard when our feelings, our emotions, these messages that we that get pushed in our minds. Um, Lord, help us to believe the truth. Help us, God, not to grow weary from this battle. Uh, where it's just nonstop, unceasing these lies from the devil, these this this push to rely on our works rather than faith in Christ. Lord, give us grace to not lay down our arms out of exhaustion and to allow ourselves to be pummeled by the, the enemy's lies, Lord. Help us to persevere for the sake of ourselves, for our families, for our community, God. And Lord, as we take up uh, the Lord's Supper, may we confess our sin to you, God. And may we affirm our forgiveness in you. And Lord, may we remember that what you have done and to preach the gospel to ourselves. Amen. So we're, we're excited to take the Lord's Supper together. It is exactly... Um, the, the application, if you will, from what we just looked here, preaching the truth to ourselves. And that's exactly what we're doing the Lord's Supper, where Jesus says, remember, remember, and we're remembering. Uh, here at uh, Soe, we practice open communion, basically meaning um, communion is just not open for not only the members of Soe, the local church, but for any believer of the universal church, the body of Christ. And so uh, to those who put their faith uh, in Jesus. And so as as we think about the bread, and as we take up the bread, pray with me. Um, Father, we think of your sacrifice of your son, Lord, on the cross. The sacrifice is you not only watched, but you poured out your wrath on Jesus that we deserve. Lord, as we take this bread, may it be real to us how free we are from your punishment and from your wrath forever as Jesus took upon ourselves. And Lord, how how easy is it to think that? But Lord, help us to to let that be ingrained in our souls and that over over rushes with love for you. Amen.